it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here with us every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, around the clock, for free, on demand, as part of our podcast, if you can't listen live. We do, of course, recommend listening as we air, but if you can't, there's a podcast for that. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show both on Twitter and on Instagram. Programming note on the TV side, I'll be with my friend Kennedy tonight on FBN, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour, part of the panel. So set your DVRs or you can tune in then. Here on the radio, our lineup is as follows. We are hoping to catch up with Chad Pergram on Capitol Hill sometime this hour. We'll see. He's very busy. Dan Crenshaw, Republican congressman from Texas, is also scheduled to be with us. That's also in flux because of potential votes, just giving you a heads up of what we're trying to do, at least here on the program. Jason Rance, our friend from KTTH, our affiliate out in Seattle, he will be here later on in the show as well, as will Howie Kurtz, who's on the Media Beat, host of Media Buzz, here at Fox News. As we come to the air on this Wednesday, let's start with a Fox News alert. It is day two of the theoretical House Republican majority. And as of this hour, there is still no Speaker of the House. The House cannot convene, cannot do business, cannot swear in members, cannot begin any effort at moving an agenda until first there is a Speaker of the House. And minutes ago, we just witnessed the fifth ballot in this speaker's battle. And the result was basically exactly the same as it has been. This is the first time in a century that the speaker vote even went to a second ballot. It's now past ballot number five, and the rumor is that there could be ballot number six happening any minute. So yesterday, just to recap, and I know some of this is very inside baseball in D.C., but it's also also like kind of elementary stuff. Speaker of the House, someone to lead the new majority. You need a majority of the House to elect a speaker. Republicans have a very narrow one, same size, actually, as the Democrats' majority in the last Congress, just flipped. Democrats have 212 seats that they control. Right now, there's there's one member who died. So they won 213 seats, but they control 212, and the Republicans have the others, 222. Yesterday, in the three votes, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, got 203 votes in the first ballot, 203 votes in the second ballot, 202 votes in the third ballot. And you had 19 Republicans voting for someone else, 
in rounds one and two. That number ticked up to 20 in round three. Meanwhile, in all five rounds over the course of these two days, every single Democrat has voted for their leader, Hakeem Jeffries. So 212, 212, 212, 212, 212. Perfect attendance and not a single missed vote. Now, what's happened today on the Republican side? Basically more of the same. In fact, McCarthy's number went from 203 down to 202 yesterday. And then today, in both of the votes that have been held today, he's been at 201. That's because the voting for others contingent held steady at 20. That has not changed. Not a single vote has moved from yesterday. Not one. The only change is a previous McCarthy vote at 202 has now gone into voting present. And that happened again. So it was 212 earlier today, earlier this afternoon. Hakeem Jeffries, 212. Kevin McCarthy, 201. Byron Donalds, a member from Florida, 20. And one abstention. Then they rolled into a fifth vote. This was just a little while ago. And the numbers were identical. Not a single change. So I don't know what to tell you. The rumors and reports are that a sixth vote may occur here, and then the Republicans might try to adjourn the chamber again. Three votes yesterday, fail, 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 adjourn. Maybe they'll do the same thing here. They've done the fail, fail part. They would need another fail potentially, then try to adjourn. The thing is, though, there's a chance that the Democrats might try to whip against a motion to adjourn this time, keep the pressure on the Republicans, And Republican leadership is worried that they might not have the votes. So they might try to adjourn and fail to adjourn. We'll see. This is all just speculation at this point. I'm looking at my screen right now. I think I see Justin Amash, the former congressman from Michigan, down on the floor, unless my eyes deceive me. He has put out on Twitter that he would be willing to run for speaker. I just that (laughs) technically he's allowed. Here's the other rumor that's percolating, that Kevin McCarthy might be now opening negotiations with Democrats. Now, I don't know what that would look like, what kind of concessions they would demand, what they would necessarily get or give in return, maybe getting some of their people to vote present or not to vote at all, probably, which would bring the threshold down for McCarthy? Maybe, but what would McCarthy have to give up? And would Democrats negotiate with him in good faith and vice versa? I don't know. Maybe that's just a scare tactic. Maybe they're just trying to leak out that McCarthy or perhaps other Republicans are starting to reach across the aisle to scare the right flank of the party to say, okay, if we don't relent at some point here, then we might end up with the speaker, either McCarthy, who's now given concessions to Democrats that we're going to be unhappy with, or Maybe some sort of quote-unquote consensus bipartisan speaker or someone who gets installed with votes of both parties that would be, I would guess, quite unpalatable to the Freedom Caucus holdouts. I don't know. I texted a few of my sources. They think it's scare tactics right now. It is all fluid. It's all very much in flux. Here's one other dynamic that was introduced today that wasn't at play yesterday. And I think this is interesting for reasons that go beyond just this skirmish and I would say this embarrassment for the House Republicans. Overnight and into today, 
President Trump, I saw he had been asked, the former president, whether he still stood behind McCarthy, right? He's been watching this. He sees what's happening. McCarthy's not getting the votes. It's been a lot of intransigence, really no one budging. And he gave an interview. I'm trying to remember which which outlet it was. Might have been NBC. He gave a quick phone call interview where he would not commit to doubling down or standing by his previous endorsement of McCarthy because Trump was for McCarthy. Then this has all been happening. It's all been playing out. Trump would not reinforce his McCarthy endorsement. But then that was later yesterday. Then we got a number of posts on Truth Social, Trump's platform, where he was vociferously in a full-throated way re-upping his endorsement of Kevin McCarthy for speaker. I mean, he had it in all caps saying, you know, it's time to take the win. Enough of this. Everyone has to vote for Kevin McCarthy. That's what Trump did. That was ahead of today's votes. And I would note that the holdouts, by and large, these roughly 20 Republicans who haven't been voting for McCarthy, they would fall into what both they and the Democrats would perhaps lump into this category of ultra-MAGA for the most part. This is an ultra-MAGA contingent. These are Trump's people. So Trump comes out with this forceful reendorsement of Kevin McCarthy. Two separate posts, capital letters, exclamation points, all of it. And Kevin McCarthy plus Donald Trump did not move a single vote, not one. Trump demanded that his people get behind his guy. And they didn't even blink. They shrugged and went right back to voting for someone else. So that's bad news for McCarthy, obviously. It also is perhaps a reflection on some diminished juice, shall we say, for the former president. If he can't wield influence over these folks on a high high profile battle that he's now decided to wade into, he was noncommittal, then became very committal, and then they basically flipped the double bird to the guy. That is interesting to me. Sort of add that to the list of incidents and occurrences over the last couple of months since Trump announced that he was running for president again that at least raise your eyebrows a little bit. All right, hang on here. Let's, let's bring in another Fox News alert real quick. It appears that right now on the House floor, and this is just a few blocks away from our studios here at Fox, it appears that they are now entering the sixth ballot on the speaker vote. I think this might be Kat Kamek, although I'm not quite sure. There is a Republican member, female, who is currently giving a speech. I think she is giving yet another nominating speech. For Kevin McCarthy. So this is how it goes. Each round, someone gets up and nominates McCarthy. Then the Democrats come up. It's uh, Aguilar gets up and nominates Hakeem Jeffries. Then various different people have gotten up to nominate a third person. And then the vote goes on. Yes, this is Kat Kamek, Republican of Florida. She is right now kicking off this process again by giving a speech on behalf of Kevin McCarthy. So she'll give her comments. She'll get a standing ovation. The Democrats will do their show. The holdouts will have their person come up. It's been Chip Roy. It's been 
others. Paul Gosar did it. I think Lauren Boebert did it today. That'll happen again. It'll be off to the votes again, and we'll see if a single thing changes. So far today, not a single vote has moved anywhere. And if there's no movement or meaningful movement here in the next, let's say, hour, then what? Maybe they go into adjournment for a second consecutive day with no speaker and therefore no functioning House of Representatives. That is entirely possible. Or maybe they don't get the votes to adjourn and this uncertain mess just plays on. The band plays on. And I will just simply ask the question that I asked yesterday, and I will re- I will reiterate it here with perhaps increased urgency. What is the point of this? What is the plan? And at some point, what is the alternative? There has not been a serious answer to any of that yet. And we're just getting underway, prepping for vote number six. It's been a century since we even had a second ballot, let alone a sixth. So it's history playing out, that's for sure. And we're watching it in real time on The Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. Please stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Congresswoman Kat Kamek of Florida is again nominating Kevin McCarthy for speaker, and she's getting booed and jeered by the Democrats because she suggested that they were eating popcorn and boozing over there while the Republicans are in disarray. They didn't like that, or at least they pretended not to like it. So they were booing her. She's still talking here. So this is her nomination speech, the sixth on behalf of Kevin McCarthy. Let's just dip in briefly live to Capitol Hill, the House floor. It's, a, it's upon us to remain a nation of equal opportunity, not equal outcome. That is what is on the line here today, and that is why I am nominating Kevin McCarthy, and I humbly ask for your support. Madam Clerk, I yield back. All right, so I think we missed some of the uh, excitement there and the booing and some of the drama, but the next step is the Democrats will renominate Hakeem Jeffries. We'll let you know who is nominating the other option for the Republicans. And as this all plays out, they keep showing a a shot of Kevin McCarthy, who's just sitting there stone-faced. He doesn't look like a man who's expecting anything different or better to occur this time around. President of the United States, Joe Biden, was asked about all of this earlier. Not great audio, but here's what he said in Cut 18. Regard to the fight over the speaker, excuse me, I, uh, that's not my problem. I just think it's a little embarrassing it's taking so long in the way they're dealing with one another. And the rest of the world's looking. They're looking at, you know, can we get our act together? And, uh, but uh, I, what I focus on is getting things done. He said, in regards to this speaker fight, quote, that's not my problem. I think it's a little embarrassing. I mean... Kind of hard to argue with that. It really isn't his problem, and it is embarrassing. 
Uh, I'm not sure if he's necessarily someone who should be lecturing anyone else about embarrassment because sometimes he seems like he has no capacity for it himself. But in this case, he's not wrong. He says he's focused on getting things done. And intriguingly, one of those things appears to be his intention to go finally down to the border, according to the White House. I saw that minutes ago on the news channel from Peter Ducey. I think Bloomberg reported it. So that's something that perhaps we'll ask Congressman Crenshaw about coming up here later in the hour. But that's the presidential reaction there. Pete Aguilar is now the uh, the caucus chairman for the Democrats. They have totally revamped their leadership team. They've got Hakeem Jeffries from New York, then a woman from Massachusetts, I think Miller is her name, and then Aguilar is the third in command. I think Jim Clyburn is still like uh, one of the leaders emeritus of the Democratic conference, and Aguilar has now given his sixth speech on behalf of the Democratic leader for Speaker. And now there is, it looks like, a new Republican entering the fray here to offer a different nomination, whether it is Byron Donalds again. We'll find out momentarily. But we are literally following this right now live in real time. They keep also showing sort of a shot in the background Tom Kane Jr., I recognize him, newly elected freshman from New Jersey, longtime politician in the state, son, if I'm not mistaken, of the former Republican governor, moderate Republican. He won his district in New Jersey as a pickup for the GOP. He's been sitting sort of near the front benches throughout a lot of this over the last two days. Can you imagine being a brand new congressperson? This is your first day or two on the job. By the way, this is Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania, who is now giving uh, a speech, a nominating speech in this process. Can you? But can you imagine being brand new to Congress? It's day two, you would think, on the job, and you still haven't been sworn in yet because there's no speaker. They call your name every so often to stand up and say someone's name, and it goes nowhere. It's got to be pretty surreal. Meanwhile, the Democrats over and over again just keep en masse, uniformly voting for Hakeem Jeffries, who I will remind you is an election denier. So all that talk about election denial being so dangerous, I guess I don't really believe it over there. But they're in lockstep. The Republicans, not so much. One of them joins us next, Dan Crenshaw. Stay tuned. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back with a Fox News alert on the Guy Benson show. Scott Perry, a Republican from Pennsylvania, I believe a congressman elect who hasn't been sworn in yet. He is giving a speech right now on behalf of Byron Donalds to nominate him. And he's going on for quite a while. This will be the holdout crowd. He just wrapped up, it looks like. 
down in the well of the House. So let's get to our first guest here on the show. It is Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, who is joining us from just outside the chamber. Congressman, good to have you back. Yeah, great to be with you, Guy. I understand that you're going to be called on to go vote. It's alphabetical, C for Crenshaw. So whenever you have to go, just let us know. You can go cast your vote. But in the meantime, I think a lot of people are listening to this right now and kind of wondering, broadly speaking, what the hell? Uh, Feel free to respond to that however you so choose. Yeah, I mean, I've made my thoughts pretty clear. And it's getting weirder and weirder. Um, Look, they they, they came into this without a plan. And look, if if, if you want to... And here's here's what I'll tell them, what I've been telling them. If you wanted to have someone else a speaker, you know, you knew this moment was coming, just like you know an election is coming. And when you know an election is coming, well, you start running. You start building support. You go out and you fundraise. If somebody else wanted to run, if they wanted to run a different candidate, well, they could have been competing with Kevin McCarthy this whole time. But they didn't. So they had no plan. Um, They have some – some some list of demands that mostly have been met. Uh, the the speech Scott Perry just gave about what needs to change and et cetera, et cetera. Those have been met. Those have largely been agreed to um, in the rules package. So we don't know what the hell he's talking about at this point. Uh, they settled on Jim Jordan for a while, who's obviously a very well respected conservative leader, but then they ditched him. So now they're settling on um, a freshman named uh, Byron Donalds. Uh, I, I don't know where that came from. They're 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 making the argument that it's about um, identity politics and that we should have a, a, a black speaker. Um, that that's actually where they're going with this. No one knows what the heck is is going on or, or what their end game is. Um, they basically close all the doors and pull the pins on the grenades, and they're staring at each other like, "What the hell do we do?" Um, everyone is trying to work with them in good faith. To give them an off ramp because this is this is a terrible situation for, for them. <laughs> mostly, um, they they are responsible for holding up a, a GOP agenda. Um, they could be responsible for Democrats pulling some really clever deals, maybe forcing a plurality vote, maybe potentially getting a rules package that Democrats want. I don't know. I mean, the possibilities um, we could talk for hours about them, but they're dangerous for Republicans. The best solution here is go with the guy that already won 85% of our internal vote. He won the primary with 85%, and so the obvious thing to do after that is to vote for him in the general election, which is what we're doing now. Um, We've asked these uh, different members repeatedly what they want, and they can't tell us. They give us these platitudes. They give us – it's like they're talking on the campaign trail. They say the place doesn't work. Washington is broken. Enough is enough. We don't trust the system. We don't trust that you'll follow the rules. And we're like, what? What does that mean? Give me something specific, and they won't. Well, I mean, if they're, if they're talking about, and by the way, they've now started voting. Um, they've they've taken the roll call, or at least it's underway, and already Byron Donalds has two votes. So it looks like the same pattern is going to play out again for the sixth mm-hmm. consecutive time, basically, here. I, what I'm trying to figure out is, like, if they say enough is enough and the whole thing is broken, I mean, this, I now it's a third vote, by the way, for Donalds. I saw Lauren Boebert just voted for him. I don't know how else you could illustrate any better the brokenness of the place than this, what we've been watching for the last two days. And again, if there's an end goal, an end game, some sort of outcome that's reasonable, I'm open to hearing about it. I just don't really understand what that would look like. And therefore, like, 
Where does this go, Congressman? How long could this go on? We look, our side will hold out longer than they will. Um, we're, we're all noticing everyone turning on them again. It was a huge tactical mistake. If, if they want to rally behind Jim Jordan, even though he's telling them not to, at least uh, our our grassroots they love Jim Jordan. So I get that, but they stopped doing that, and then they insulted Donald Trump. Did you, uh, did you hear that part earlier? Yes, I did. Lauren yep. Boebert, and 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 you know because yeah because she's really served this country. So she gets up and sees, she basically tells Donald Trump to F off. That's what she just did. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I, just, I just couldn't believe it. So I don't know what path they're going down. I think, again, they've pulled the pins on the grenades and they've locked themselves inside of a room. And I, they we're trying to give them off ramps and they won't articulate what those off ramps are. I mean, it's genuinely uh, frightening. And so it, it's let me like ask they, you this. It's almost like they're being paid by Democrats to, to force us into a deal with Democrats. I, like, I don't know what else to think at this point. One name that gets tossed around is Steve Scalise, who's well-liked member of leadership. It's like, oh, well, you know, what if you gave him a shot instead of McCarthy? First of all, McCarthy would have to step aside for that to happen. Second of all, if it were Scalise, would any of this dynamic change at all? No, I don't know. No, no, it would change, and we all know it wouldn't change, which is why we can't give in. And, and like so, so, so those of us who are standing against this, we're, we're standing for principle. They are standing for notoriety. They're standing for that extra news hit because nobody ever cares about them, and they're frustrated by that, and they want that extra news hit. We know that we can't give in to this because then they will always run the conference, and they'll just get another scalp and another scalp, whether it's, whether it's Boehner or Paul Ryan or then McCarthy. Scalise would just be next, and we all know it. We just can't allow that to happen. That's why those of us are saying, like, look, you pushed us into this corner, so now we're now we're saying we won't vote for anyone but McCarthy. That's why we're saying it, because we cannot let the terrorists win. That, that's basically what's happening. Um, and I do have to All go right. vote soon. Go, yeah, I see that they're in the seas. So, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, go ahead and vote. I think we know who you're voting for here for the sixth time. Dan Crenshaw of Texas, our guest, on the Guy Benson show. I mean, and obviously a uh, very exasperated Congressman, right there, we do appreciate your time. And if you're watching this or following it, he's going to stand up and and say Kevin McCarthy here any second on the House floor as he just had stepped away to talk to us, talking about this group of 20 or so as terrorists. That was what he called them. Said that they almost seem like they're being paid by the Democrats, which is, uh, you know, kind of fighting words. Uh, his comments about Lauren Boebert, I mean, obviously tensions are high within the Republican conference because, I mean, obviously it's a problem being caused by the folks who are holding out. And f- to what end continues to be my question. Right, This is what I said yesterday in my opening monologue, still when it was still relatively early in this whole rolling embarrassment. I said, if you're not a McCarthy, f- I'm not a huge McCarthy fan. I'm not. For a number of reasons. I don't hate the guy. I don't dislike him personally. He seems perfectly nice. He just sat four feet away from me in the studio not long ago at the very end of last year, right here. Nice guy. Met his wife. She's nice. I have not been overly impressed with his leadership at the top of the Republican then opposition. I agree with him on some things. Thought he's done a good job in certain respects. No question. Less impressed in other ways dubious about whether he or anyone could be an effective speaker. How could anyone be an effective speaker if this is what you're dealing with? If you're going to have a conference that won't even allow 
the 85 percent consensus of the party to become Speaker of the House. Then what? Once you move on. At some point, you would think to actual attempt uh, attempts at legislation. And by the way, it looks like Byron Donalds, who is just the the standard bearer of Republican opposition right now, is like kind of the placeholder. It was, as you heard, Jim Jordan. Now it's been Byron Donalds today. He's now at six. So, you know, barring something else, I mean, it looks like round six has already failed for McCarthy. Byron Donald just notched his seventh vote. And we now have Dan Crenshaw back on the line, Republican from Texas, who went, cast his vote for Kevin McCarthy, who has 35 votes. Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat, who has come in first place, by the way, in all these votes. He's got 43. You got Byron Donald's at seven, which is past the threshold. This will be another failure, it looks like. All right, Congressman, welcome back. So you just cast your vote. I'm just trying to figure out, like, setting aside what what this means for the future of this so-called majority, because right now it is not a functional majority, just in the immediate future. I know there's discussion about maybe trying to adjourn again for the night like happened yesterday. What would that accomplish? It just seems like no matter what happens, talking more is achieving nothing. So at, at some point, you would think that you would have to get out of whatever this rut is and do something quite different to try to get a different result. I'm just trying to figure out what those options would look like. Yeah, it, look, we are too. Um, <laughs> because, again, you know, and I want to I want to tell the audience this very very clearly. I, this has been reported widely, but any one of us, whether it's members of Congress or members of the media, who ask these twenty holdouts, what is it you want? Like, what's your end game? They can't answer it. They can't answer it because because McCarthy and leadership did give in on a lot of the rules changes they wanted, they negotiated them. They you know and some of these rules changes are not bad things, right? It, it's 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 changing the way the House works, right? They claim that that's what they want, and then they get these things and they get large agreement on it because it turns out that the uh, House majority is quite conservative and does believe in these same principles. But now they're the dog that caught the bone and they don't know what to do with it. And they claim, oh, it's not personal. Now it's about trust. Okay, well, how do we overcome this trust issue? Well, you know, McCarthy voted for an omnibus in 2017. I mean, literally, this is the kind of stuff they say. And we're like, yeah, when Trump was president, you mean to, to fund Trump's government? You know, so like these, they, they, they keep coming up with the more and more ridiculous reasons. I, I love bringing up the uh, example of Bob Good because I think he's one of the worst members of our caucus. This is an absolute dud. But he literally got up and he was mad at McCarthy because McCarthy took three weeks to call him after his election. Can you believe that? McCarthy, by the way, spent about $2 million to get that loser elected because he couldn't get elected on his own. You know, Lauren Boebert, who just insulted Donald Trump just because Trump's supporting McCarthy, I mean, she barely won her election. McCarthy spent a bunch of money on her because she's not good enough to win in an R plus six or seven or whatever that is. You know, these members contribute nothing, nothing to our majority. They contribute nothing to the conservative movement. They don't write bills. They don't think about policy. They don't even know who Thomas Sowell is. They've never read anything about conservative philosophy or thought. They have no opinions on how to fix Social Security or the budget. They just want to yell and scream. And then they want to make demands. And what I told some of them is, I'm like, look, you know, one of the reasons there's such intense animosity right now 
between these holdouts and everyone else is everyone else has to work for their positions. So some of the demands are, I mean, this is another crazy story. So, so they demand more places on, on committees. So McCarthy says, okay, give me a list of names. And then they refuse. And then, then they say, oh, you're trying to trick us. You know, I mean, it's like it's like playing with children. I mean, it's it's very difficult to to understand what it is they want. They also don't understand that that's not how committee selection works. The committee selection works through a steering committee, and every other member who doesn't hold the entire the entire uh, body hostage, every other member has to go to steering members to make their case, explain why they think they're the best for, for this particular committee, why they know the most about this particular subject, why they're a leader on this and that. I mean, I'm doing all of that right now for the Homeland Chairman race. And they want a different situation where because they're part of a select group that can hold the rest of the group hostage, that they should get special privileges. And this is just this is just disgusting. I mean, it's just disgusting behavior. And, you know, and if it were for a greater cause or maybe even for a policy, this is the other thing. They're not even demanding that we prioritize a certain policy. I would appreciate that. Like, what if they were saying, you know what, I will not vote for McCarthy until we know for sure that the first the first bill we vote on is to secure the border. Okay, that'd be great. But that's not what they're demanding. They don't even seem to care about that. In fact, they're preventing that from happening. If they hadn't done this, we would have already voted yesterday on a bill to defund the 87,000 IRS agents that Democrats wanted to fund to go after you and your families. That would have been the first bill that we passed out. Very close to that would be a border security bill. We can't get going. We can't hire people on our committees on homeland security to start investigations into Mayorkas because these people are preventing us from doing it. There is not a single member of Congress. Like you said before, every member, every person here is a member elect. No one's a member of Congress. So, and, to, and for what? For what? Nobody can tell you. Now, I mean, this is this, when is, you're... this is becoming a disaster. When you're talking to some of these guys and you say that you're having these conversations, I know you're trying to do this in good faith and you're trying to maintain some level of respect. You also just call them terrorists. Like, I'm just trying to figure out. It just feels like the animosity is getting visceral and personal, which might make it even harder to get out of this quagmire. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. And it's just uh, obviously that's a, obviously it's a, it's a figure of speech, but it's you know it is what it is. I mean, you're holding a gun to our head. What do you want? You know, and I don't want to hear it. I've already I've I've already been attacked by them because I've used harsh language. And I'm like, you started this fight. If you don't want to get into the octagon and get punched in the face, then don't get into the octagon. That's how I feel about it. I mean, this is because there's no good faith here. The, the good faith has been lost. They keep talking about good faith and, and then you want to play victim. No, no. So now I'm not going to apologize for harsh language. And you guys know me. That's how I am. I speak boldly, you know, and this is this is this is terrorism tactics. It is what it is. You know, I'm not the first one to use that term, by the way. You know, it's, it's this is getting out of control. And obviously, uh, Literally and figuratively, this is not over. It's nowhere near over. The sixth round ballot has already failed. And then dot, 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 question mark. We'll be watching. Congressman Crenshaw will be voting as they've been voting and voting and voting for two days. And whether this gets resolved 
today, tomorrow, this week. I don't know. And, and no one really does at this point. And, Congressman, we appreciate you taking some time out from all of this to uh, give us your perspective on it. And I think the frustration in your voice is palpable. People can feel that. And it's going to only build, I think, until this thing gets resolved. Congressman, thank you. Yep. Thanks for having me, guy. Dan Crenshaw, Republican, Texas, on The Guy Benson Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. Just had that very fiery exchange, really one way, from Dan Crenshaw, our guest in the last segment. Joining us now, also from Capitol Hill, our man on Capitol Hill, Chad Pergram, our Fox News colleague. Chad, we have a minute in this segment. Just give us a lay of the land real quick. Where do things stand? Well, right now, it's pretty clear that they are going to have to go to a seventh vote for speaker. The reason they're only about uh, 130 votes into this sixth roll call vote for speaker. The problem is that there are more than four votes against Kevin McCarthy. There are 12 members on the board right now for Byron Donalds. Uh, Kevin McCarthy can only lose four votes uh, on each round here. And so they're going to have to go to a seventh vote. You allude to some of the tension on Capitol Hill that is increasing. There have been some heckling back and forth across the House chamber. And what's interesting is that behind the scenes, there are not negotiations. So after this vote, will they start to negotiate? That hasn't happened just yet. Are people getting mad at each other? Does that actually force some sort of an outcome? That is a possibility. But we'll know at the end of this vote if they're going to go to a seventh vote. Which they'll need to do at some point. And the question is, if there are negotiations, who's doing the negotiating and to what end? A lot of questions still swirling. Chad Pergram on Capitol Hill. Thank you much, sir. We'll be right back. Another hour straight ahead. Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our online home. Podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. Fox News alert. The Dow closes up 133 points, ending at 33,269 today. And that market update, sponsored by Americans for Prosperity, our friends there. They are committed to empowering every single American to realize their own American dreams by being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity. That's AFP, AmericansForProsperity.org, for more information there. Another Fox News alert. The sixth ballot for speaker is underway as I speak. Right now, Hakeem Jeffries, 154, Kevin McCarthy, 150. Others, 17. All of those votes going to Byron Donalds well past the threshold to force a seventh round at some point. Whether that's tonight or tomorrow, who knows? And we discussed that at length in the last hour. Joining us now is Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show, KTTH in Seattle, Tacoma, our affiliate out there. He's also crime correspondent at the Tucker Carlson program on Fox News. And Jason, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Thank you. Happy New Year. Yes, from our Washington to your Washington, uh, hard to really pick which one is more dysfunctional these days. Usually you guys win, but maybe not today. I'm just wondering, I know all this stuff is very much what we do on this show, national politics, D.C.-based. 
from your perch out in the Pacific Northwest and, and getting a vibe on your audience these last couple of days, what's the reaction to what we're seeing here where we're now on day two of no Speaker of the House? I maintain that there's two separate groups of people. They're the ones who listen to us, and they sort of nerd out the way that we do. We we, we find this interesting and compelling and dramatic. Right. But ultimately, I think there's a larger group of people who just don't see this as a significant deal. They're dealing with actual problems, right? They're dealing with the cost of gasoline and food. They're dealing with everyday issues of crime and homelessness in their communities. And, you know, perhaps they roll their eyes and and see this as dysfunction. I kind of fall into the camp. Well, uh, I agree that it's certainly embarrassing from uh, the the leadership perspective, uh, from from Kevin McCarthy's perspective. But this is also democracy in action. I kind of fall into that category. This is a, a, a normal function of politics. We don't see it all that often because usually it's not done in public. And so now it is. And rather than do it behind closed doors where no one actually knows what's happening and and no one knows the motivations, they're doing this all in public. And I think that that is sort of a cornerstone of our democracy. But but ultimately, I I think people are, are kind of vaguely paying attention to this outside of people who listen to talk radio and who who watch uh, Fox News, because obviously we're going there and we're listening because we do want to get this sort of inside baseball look at what goes on. But I just don't think the average person, at least at this point, is saying that this shows them that the Republican Party is chaotic and that this kind of dysfunction means the country isn't going to run. I just don't think it's gotten to that point yet. Yeah, no, the the longer it drags on, maybe it starts to get worse in that way. I am less concerned. Look, they're going to find a speaker at some point. They might get to a place that a lot of conservatives hate if they end up having to negotiate with Democrats on this stuff, which they might, by the way. Um, so that could be a problem and get the base furious. And there'd be a lot of finger pointing even within the base who is really at fault if it comes down to that. But I, I'm less worried about this, I'm more worried about what this portends for the next two years, because once there's a speaker, if that speaker can't lead and corral even a somewhat functioning majority, then I do think it might become a problem for the Republican Party, which barely was given this amount of power to begin with from a reluctant public. So that is something that I guess I'm going to flag and something that we'll just put a pin in and come back to perhaps over the next two years. Who knows what the next 24, 48 hours hold, let alone the next 24 months. But it is, I think you're right, very heavily covered and sort of fixated on among political junkies who are disproportionately represented in this audience and in your audience. Maybe not breaking through as like a real crisis among the American people, but it could end up being damaging uh, moving forward. We'll see. In the meantime here, Jason, I want to read to you from this piece. I'm sure you've seen it, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's a column by Jillian K. Melchior. Headline is, How a Nonprofit Bail Fund Frees Violent Criminals. And we've spent some attention focusing on the Minneapolis Bail Fund, which was actively promoted, for example, by Kamala Harris in the summer of 2020, and some of the really outrageous things that happened with the money that flowed into that organization Here's another one, but this is in your neck of the woods. She writes, a case in point on all of this is the Seattle-based Northwest Community Bail Fund, established in 2018. Some defendants 
the bail fund has assisted have allegedly gone on to commit additional crimes, including violent ones. Three have been charged with murder. The King County's prosecuting attorney's office, which handles Seattle felonies, says 347 of its defendants have been bailed out by the fund since mid-2020. The fund has posted bail on behalf of defendants for arrests on child rape, death threats, residential burglaries, hate crimes, and assault with a deadly weapon, among other serious offenses. I mean, this is another piece of this puzzle, just a different type of dysfunction in this country, where yet again, your city, your neck of the woods seems to be at least one of the ground zeroes. Yeah, and I'm glad people are now starting to pay attention to this nationally. I've been talking about the Northwest Community Bail Fund for a very, very long time because as I cover crime in this city, I started to see this group popping up many times, and they just indiscriminately pay the bail for people who check off certain boxes on their sort of intersectionality checklist. They look for people who are homeless. They look for people who are racial minorities or gender minorities, and that's it. That's the only basis for their decision to release folks, and that's why you see them releasing dangerous people. There was a case I covered, I want to say maybe a year and a half ago or so, in which I remember the guy's name, Michael Sadeo. This is a guy who was originally popped for, I believe it was assault and robbery. He goes into jail. The prosecutor's office says, this is a dangerous guy. We need to have bail. Judge uncharacteristically sets bail. And then this bail fund comes in, pays for him to be released. And a few weeks later, the guy is accused of stabbing a homeless man to death at a park. And we have cases like this over and over and over again. I, I, and, and by the way, like who's who's speaking on behalf of the, you know, intersectionality, identity fixated victims, right? People who would check all of those same boxes, but they're the ones getting yeah. robbed and murdered. Exactly. But but the problem is, this is a, a deeply ideological group. They are abolitionists. They do not believe in jail. They want to abolish the police. That's what goes into the thinking here. And so for them, anyone who comes from a marginalized community who happens to be in jail, they're the victims. They don't care about the real victims, the actual victims. They perceive the criminals to be the victims of a racist criminal justice system, blah, 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 talking point, talking point. They, they are dangerous. These groups, which, by the way, is to, to your point, it, it's not just uh, Seattle. It's not just Minneapolis. These groups are happening all across the country, and they benefited from the BLM movement where a lot of people did not realize that they were donating to groups like this. They were told that they were just going to get some of the protesters who were unjustly arrested out of jail, except that was never the real intent. Sure, they, they used some of that money for that purpose, but they got so much money. And the truth of the matter is, protesters, actual protesters, weren't being just rounded up and thrown in jail. Violent people were. And they end up using all this money to further their cause. And I don't think that the average person who donates money to either this group or any of the other groups realized how the money was truly going to be spent. One more topic on the intersectionality bingo card. About a minute left. Have you seen this story about a lot of headlines? First transgender person put to death, I, I think the state of Missouri, executed mm -hmm. a transgender woman who was convicted of murder back when she was a he, murdered his girlfriend at the time. Everyone's talking about, uh, this, oh, there's a transgender person who's been put to death. 
Very few people talking about the actual crime, the murder, the victim in that case. I guess if, if people want to want, you know, they want to talk about equality, yeah. this is equality. This, this, this I, is right? equity, That's one way right? of looking at it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, well, let us celebrate this, that we're actually we're putting to death murderers, regardless of their gender identity, regardless of any uh, personality trait or race or religion. We treat all degenerates the way that they ought to be treated, which is we put them down like the dogs that they are. Okay. Well, on that note, it has been already quite a day for you out in Seattle, for us here in D.C. The beat goes on. Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show, KTTH, our proud affiliate in the Pacific Northwest. Jason, appreciate it. Talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. With that, we're up on a break. Let's take it. We'll turn the topic to a few other non-explicitly speaker-related issues and then bring you updates as needed. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. Interesting story from CNBC headline. Nonprofit financed by billionaire George Soros quietly donated $140 million to political causes in 2021. This is a fresh story today. Now, I know that there are some people, and I've mentioned this before, who want to insulate George Soros from any mention, any criticism, because they say, oh, it's all anti-Semitism. No. We'll actually talk about real anti-Semitism later on in the hour. Now, are there anti-Semitic things that are said about George Soros sometimes by some people and tropes and that kind of thing? Yeah. And that's completely unacceptable. It is, however, acceptable to criticize someone who pours huge amounts of money into American politics. He is actively involved. He has financed, for example, the campaigns of a bunch of these terrible, effectively pro-criminal district attorneys across the country, resulting in a big bump in a wide variety of crimes, making people's lives worse, making places less safe. He wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal defending it, saying he's proud of it, that he'll continue doing so. Okay, that's his right. That's his prerogative. He can come out and make those points. We can come out and criticize them. That's how this works. So we're not going to be afraid to talk about George Soros because some people automatically say, "Ooh, that's a bigotry. It's code word. No, it's not. We're talking about him and specifically what he's up to in American politics. Plus, these people have no compunction when it comes to criticizing millionaires and billionaires generally or specific ones who give a lot of money to Republicans. Right? Whether it's Peter Thiel. Are all criticisms of Peter Thiel homophobic? Is that the game that we're playing? Yeah, the Koch brothers or whatever, you go down the list. Those people don't get a break, but they want everyone to back off to you can't say Soros. Well, here's the story from CNBC. A nonprofit financed by billionaire George Soros quietly donated $140 million to advocacy organizations and ballot initiatives in 2021, plus another $60 million to like-minded charities. Soros personally donated $170 million during the 2022 midterms to Democratic candidates and campaigns on top of that. 
So, like, you're pushing half a billion dollars here in the span of two years. He spread the additional largesse to the Open Society Policy Center, a 501c4 nonprofit that falls under the Soros-funded Open Society Foundation's network, according to a tax filing obtained by CNBC. The Open Society Policy Center also doled out $138 million to advocacy groups and causes in 2020. Two of Soros's children sit on its board. The donations bring Soros's contributions to political campaigns and causes since January of 2020 to roughly half a billion dollars at least. Most of it, listen to this, most of it steered through dark money nonprofit groups and going largely toward political causes aligned with the Democratic Party. Half a billion dollars in two years. Most of it through dark money and those various channels. And these tentacles of this organization controlled by him and his kids. Of course, this is fair game to discuss. I'm glad CNBC is reporting on it. What I really want to underscore is the absolute hypocrisy on the left. Right. We talked yesterday and a little bit today about how Democrats over and over again have been voting for Hakeem Jeffries for speaker. This is an unrepentant, to remind you, election denier, to use the claim and the term that they use so often over there. They say it's very dangerous, bad for democracy, very, very dangerous when Republicans do it. When Democrats are election deniers, they become huge celebrities. They get nominated for the governor in Georgia and get showered with huge amounts of money. They become basically stars on the political left. They become the leader of House Democrats. That's how seriously worried Democrats truly are about election denialism, which is to say not at all. Same thing when it comes to money in politics. Oh, dangerous. Very bad, very insidious. Buying our democracy. Dark money. And as usual, they love dark money. They love money in politics. If it's their money. They hate it. It's like, you know, oh, all these alarms. Alarm bells and concerns and hand-wringing and pearl-clutching if there are conservatives involved in dark money efforts. But for the people who claim to be against all of that on principle, even when they have opportunities to put those principles into action, they don't because they don't really believe it. It's something that they want to posture and preen about for certain activists who might actually care about it, but also just to pat themselves on the back and congratulate one another about how committed they are to democracy and good governance. But when the rubber meets the road, whether it was Barack Obama breaking his big promise back in 2008, all the way up through this, like $500 million from one guy, most of it dark in two years, they don't care at all. Which is why their sermons on this stuff should be met with total disdain. Just ignore it. They don't mean it. They don't believe it. They don't live it. And they never will. They will do what benefits them in pursuit of their power and with certain limiting exceptions, obviously, the right needs to do the same. You don't compound a problem where two wrongs make a right. 
but you also don't unilaterally surrender and you don't allow yourself to be bullied and cowed on this type of stuff from people who are using this stuff exclusively as a weapon and would never, ever, ever, and do not, it's not even hypothetical, they do not put themselves ever at a disadvantage based on their alleged principles. And this story just helps underscore that point yet again, which is why we flagged it on The Guy Benson Show back after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through the show, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is the website podcast, free every day on demand. Well, yesterday we played just a small snippet of Governor Ron DeSantis being sworn in, having won the smashing, eye-popping victory that he did down in Florida in November. And I promised that we would get to a few clips of the substance in his inaugural address, which was quite good and not just embracing the mandate in Florida that he earned, but I think also telegraphing a vision potentially for a wider audience and perhaps for the country. I will get to some of that audio in just a second, but before I do that, he makes some references that I think, of course, very much benefit him and his record in Florida, I just want to give some added context in advance. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago talking about migration within America, domestic migration, where people are moving from state to state. And in between July of 2021 and July of last year, the top 10 states in terms of In migration, domestically, people arriving, moving to those states from other states in the nation, top 10 were Oklahoma at number 10, Alabama at 9, then Idaho, Arizona, Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina. Are you sensing a pattern? North Carolina, number two is Texas at nearly a quarter million people. And number one is the state of Florida. Nearly 320,000 new Floridians moved to that state from other places in the country during that one-year span. Florida coming in at number one. In case you're curious about the other end of the spectrum, here are the bottom ten, or the bottom five. Let's just give you those for now. Massachusetts, New Jersey, Illinois. Perhaps you can detect another pattern here. Maybe there's a theme here. Number two, New York. At nearly 300,000 residents moving out. By the way, let me just linger for a second on New York. You might remember that Kathy Hochul, who barely won re-election in that state against a very impressive, spirited Lee Zeldin in his campaign. In fact, perhaps the fact that so many New Yorkers left New York and moved to Florida might have doomed Lee Zeldin. There just weren't enough Republicans left in New York to put him over the top. But last year or months ago, Hochul was ridiculing conservatives, basically saying, if you believe all those evil, awful things, then get out of here. Move to Florida. We don't want you. These days, she's singing a very different tune, saying that this is a big problem. It's draining their resources and their tax base. And she said that they need to address this outflux. Well, surprise, surprise. And there was quite an outflux of nearly 300,000 people out of New York. And then number one, 
or you could say number 50, dead last, California, which lost nearly 350,000 residents. These are not accidents. This isn't just some weird coincidence. People are voting with their feet. And the Wall Street Journal editorial on this read as follows. Texas and Florida make up about 15% of the U.S. population, but accounted for 70% of its population growth in the past year. That's one of the revealing facts in the Census Bureau's annual assessment of U.S. migration released last week. The biggest news is that the exodus from progressive-led states has not slowed, even as COVID lockdowns eased. The editors write, Democratic governors can't even blame bad weather. All of Illinois' neighbors, except Michigan, gained population. So you think about who borders Illinois and what kind of states those are, with the exception of Michigan. They all gained population. Illinois lost a lot of population. They were in the bottom five. I think we can guess why. This editorial said this as well. The contrast between California and Florida, I would just add number 50 and number one, respectively, on this spectrum, is particularly striking and instructive. Governor Gavin Newsom this summer ran ads in Florida urging residents, quote, to join us in California, where we still believe in freedom. While women in California are free to have an abortion on demand, they can't choose where their children go to school. Restaurants aren't even free to hand out plastic straws. Florida has no income tax and an expansive private school choice program. It also doesn't smother businesses with regulations. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis doesn't have to run ads in progressive states. The Sunshine State sells itself. Which brings us to Governor DeSantis and his second inaugural address yesterday. Before a large, boisterous crowd in Tallahassee, a number of my friends were down there joining in the festivities. And he had a number of things to say. I want to pick up with this, talking about certain contrasts and going through the record that he and his administration and the Republicans in that state established over the past four years that earned them the resounding victory that they received from the electorate in November. Nineteen and a half points in the case of DeSantis specifically. Let's start in cut 24. Over the past few years, as so many states in our country grinded their citizens down, we in Florida lifted our people up. When other states consigned their people's freedom to the dustbin, Florida stood strongly as freedom's linchpin. When the world lost its mind, when common sense suddenly became an uncommon virtue, Florida was a refuge of sanity, a citadel of freedom for our fellow Americans and even for people around the world. In captaining the ship of state, we choose to navigate the boisterous sea of liberty rather than cower in the calm docks of despotism. And the appeal of that approach is self-evident based on some of these statistics that I just rehearsed for you. He went on and cut 25. We face attacks. We take hits. But we weather the storms. We stand our ground. And we do what's right. As the book of Psalms reminds us, I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. 
We have refused to use poles and to put our finger in the wind. Leaders do not follow, they lead. I think this is one of the most appealing things about him for a lot of conservatives. Facing the attacks, almost relishing the attacks, and responding aggressively and specifically. And I understand the situations are not exactly the same. It's apples and oranges. But, but, you look at what he's done in Florida. This orderly, uplifting, inaugural address being sworn back in. Huge Republican majorities that he has helped to build. A well-oiled machine down in that state now. Getting a lot of big things done. Talking not about polling or backroom deals but leadership, and you contrast that with what we've been watching these last two days in Washington, D.C., and I think it is inescapable that a leadership vacuum exists within Republican politics. And I think DeSantis is making a case not just to Floridians but to other people as well if he wants to run for president, and again, we've Read elsewhere that if he decides to run, he won't make that announcement until probably May or later because there's a legislative session coming up in Florida. In fact, a very valuable legislative session from his perspective because he can put more points on the scoreboard leading into a potential presidential announcement. That's probably something that we can talk about and think about more in the coming weeks. But if, in fact, that is his design, if that's his plan, He is sort of setting up a contrast, Florida versus Washington, Florida versus other states. On that front, he's like, hey, let's flex. Here's what we've done in Florida in the last couple of years. Cut 26. Florida shows that results matter. We lead not by mere words, but by deeds. Four years ago, we promised to pursue a bold agenda. We did just that, and we have produced results. We said we would ensure that Florida taxed lightly, regulated reasonably, and spent conservatively, and we delivered. We promised we would enact big education reforms, and we delivered. We said we would end judicial activism by appointing jurists who understand the proper role of a judge is to apply the law as written, not legislate from the bench, and we delivered. He went on talking about the Everglades restoration project on the environment, which has actually gotten a lot of bipartisan applause down there. He talked about rebuilding from hurricanes like Michael and Ian, a big part of his leadership that won him a lot of goodwill late last year. And then comes the pivot to Florida versus other states, Florida's achievement relative to other states. Like, for example, Cough Cough, New York. Like, for example, Cough Cough, Gavin Newsom, California. We got Hochul and Newsom, respectively, trashing DeSantis every chance they get. He's like, okay, well, let's just take a look up here at the scoreboard in Cut 28. Florida is leading the nation. We are number one in these United States in net in migration. We are the nation's fastest growing state. We are number one in new business formations. We are number one in tourism. We are number one in economic freedom. We rank number one in education freedom. 
and we rank number one in parental involvement in education. Florida also ranks number one in public higher education. This is a record we can all be proud of. Sort of inclusive there. He's bragging, he's boasting, he should, but he's bragging on the state, saying this is something we can share as a point of pride. Then he talked about laboratories of democracy, 50 of them in this country, cut 29. This is, again, part of the compare and contrast theme. Now, it's often said that our federalist constitutional system, with 50 states able to pursue their own unique policies, represents a laboratory of democracy. Well, these last few years have witnessed a great test of governing philosophies, as many jurisdictions pursued a much different path than we have pursued here in the state of Florida. The policies pursued by these states have sparked a mass exodus of productive Americans from these jurisdictions, with Florida serving as the most desired destination, a promised land of sanity. Sanity. He also talked about normalcy. He said, we don't want a bunch of weird ideological adventures. We want normalcy. That was one of the things that he mentioned in the speech. And again, it's hard to look at the normalcy, look at the success down in Florida and juxtapose that with the absolute lack of normalcy, the abnormalcy, the chaos and dysfunction just a few blocks from us here in Washington, D.C., both in this city, in the city government, which we've been talking about railing against now for quite a while, seems to get crazier by the day, and then over in the Capitol as well, where Republicans technically have a majority, but, I mean, woof, versus this, what we're hearing here from Governor DeSantis. Then there is this big wind-up on wokeness that I think is music to many conservatives' ears, and also not just right-wingers. I think some of the excesses of the left, great on many people. And Republicans have to be smart and strategic about how they can exploit that, how they can bring people into the fold as a result of that. Punishing the left and winning over converts, DeSantis making that point, cut 30. Many of these cities and states have embraced faddish ideology at the expense of enduring principles. They've harmed public safety by coddling criminals and attacking law enforcement. They've imposed unreasonable burdens on taxpayers to finance unfathomable levels of public spending. They have harmed education by subordinating the interests of students and parents to partisan interest groups. They have imposed medical authoritarianism in the guise of pandemic mandates and restrictions that lack a scientific basis. This bizarre but prevalent ideology that permeates these policy measures purports to act in the name of justice for the marginalized, but it frowns upon American institutions. It rejects merit and achievement, and it advocates identity essentialism. We reject this woke ideology. We seek normalcy, not philosophical lunacy. We will not allow reality, facts, and truth to become optional. We will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. That was a big applause line on the campaign trail. And he won by 19 and a half points in the state of Florida. 
where an eight-point win is considered a landslide. That doesn't just resonate with and appeal to conservatives like a lot of us here. It probably appeals to some people who listen to this show, for example, who aren't necessarily huge DeSantis fans or aren't even really conservatives or Republicans. Maybe they're independents. Maybe they're moderate Democrats. Maybe they aren't really sure where they fit these days. A lot of people feel like they fit in Florida right now for a lot of different reasons. And what we heard from Governor DeSantis yesterday, I think, underscores why he is a formidable force in American politics right now. And I would imagine there were a lot of people in that crowd or watching on TV or listening just now who were nodding along and saying amen. We'll see where this goes in terms of his next steps. But I want to share that with you here on The Guy Benson Show. Again, quite a departure from some of the other nonsense in our politics today. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back on The Guy Benson Show, Fox News Alert. Well, round six is officially over, wrapped up a few minutes ago, and the vote totals are exactly identical to rounds four and five. So we brought you those numbers earlier. Let's just refresh you here, and it's just across the board. 212 votes for Hakeem Jeffries, all the Democrats sticking together. Kevin McCarthy stuck at 201 votes. He needs a majority, 218. 20 votes across the board for Byron Donald. No changes at all. And then one present vote. So 212, 201, 20, and 1. That's the final score on the sixth ballot. Now, there will be, at some point, a seventh ballot. What we do know is, at least for the next few hours, everything is going to go more or less behind closed doors. The voting is going to be put on hold because there was a motion to adjourn the chamber until 8 p.m. Eastern time, so a little over three hours from right now. And the Republicans voted yes. One of the Democrats' former leaders, Steny Hoyer, actually was trying to get a roll call vote to get every single person on the record, but apparently Democratic leadership didn't want to do that, the new Democratic leadership. They were okay with the adjournment. And so on a voice vote, they adjourned the lower chamber of Congress. We are six ballots deep into this historic speaker fight. And what's so interesting about it is nothing is changing. Nothing is budging. Something at some point has to give, but it's not going to happen at least in these next couple of hours. We'll see what happens tonight and have the latest for you tomorrow as well. But until then, final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. You don't want to miss it. Howie Kurtz is here when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Sponsored, as always, by our good friends at the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing. I love it. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. It is an alcoholic beverage. You can go to thelongdrink.com. That's their website to see where it's sold near you. And that list of outlets, list of places where you can go obtain long drink is expanding by popular demand. You can also order online. Thelongdrink.com. Our website here, guybensonshow.com. Friendly for all ages. 
Lots of goodies on the website, lots of content, including the free podcast every day on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's both Twitter and Instagram. And catch me tonight on TV, Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. hour with Kennedy, my very good friend. Looking forward to that. Joining us now here on the radio side is Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. He's also got his podcast, Media Buzz Meter. I follow him on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Glad to be here. All right. I want to start with a piece that you've written involving not necessarily all the machinations and dysfunction yesterday and today among House Republicans. At some point, there will be a speaker. My concern moving forward, and I wrote about this today at townhall.com, I've been talking about it, is are we seeing signposts of dysfunction and sort of a premonition of things to come in terms of an ungovernable technical but not functional majority what we're watching play out here may not impact the effectiveness of the house moving forward but it very well may howie and i think that is a critical question and issue for voters to be paying attention to here it has been an absolute debacle if this is a sign of things to come it looks like anything could be blocked uh by this faction and the thing is usually if you're if you are trying to get a victory on the hill either you roll over the opposition or you cut deals with the opposition but these people uh i'm not saying they don't have every right to fight for their point of view but are they fighting about any issues the american people care about is this a great debate over taxes or the border no it's all about perks and subcommittee chairmanships and so forth and it looks awful yeah and like personality conflicts Mm -hmm. and i understand people who are in the weeds like we are can perhaps get our arms more around some of these specific like parliamentary questions and little perks or levers of power that are being disputed right now and adjudicated it's not like no one is paying attention and it has no relevance but to average people normal voters many of whom made very clear in november that even though they're very unhappy with the ruling democratic party they didn't want to entrust national republicans in federal office with more power a lot of those people want to see just basic functionality you can have some disagreements, some gridlocks, some checks and balances. That's a feature, not a bug. But whatever this is, I think if it plays out over and over again, not just what we've seen on the speaker stuff, but moving forward on other major pieces of legislation, so-called must-pass bills on government funding and that sort of thing, I think this could be damaging not just right now in this little furor that we're all watching at the moment, but over the next two years. And just one other point that you made, Howie, that I want to underscore. Right now, a lot of people are focusing on this group of people who have been the holdouts in the speaker fights, and that's ranged, you know, in the 20-person range. Even if that number came down in the future to half a dozen people, not necessarily from the right flank of the party, but from the centrist flank of the party, you get half a dozen people together, And they can basically veto anything over the next two years if they really want to and they have the will to do it and they feel like leadership isn't really going to be able to do much about it. The Democrats had the same math to deal with last year and the year before that. 
ultimately their dissent fell in line and melted away. The Republicans are showing, and I think this could be significant, that it may not be so easy on the GOP side to get the ducks in order to do much of anything. As John Boehner and Paul Ryan learned. And so the question is, can the Republican Party govern? That's really what's at stake here. And, you know, you just have this weird uh, situation where ordinarily, you know, for example, a lot of the dissidents wanted Jim Jordan. But Jim Jordan is backing Kevin McCarthy. And nevertheless, Jordan got a bunch of votes. So it's just a bizarre situation. And I think there's one other thing we've learned today, which is Donald Trump's ability to move votes on this may be nil. Because after some backing and filling, uh, yesterday he did a full-throated endorsement of Kevin McCarthy uh, on True Social, vote for Kevin, close the deal. Yeah, like all the caps, and then the very first vote after he did that, yeah. not a single vote moved. And, and that's not just on the speaker stuff. Like, I get that we're all focused right now and enveloped in this drama on Capitol Hill. If you have leadership unable to galvanize votes, obviously, if you've got Trump from the sidelines not moving any of his strongest supporters in the House, that could have implications for the months and years ahead. Howie, I do want to shift gears, though, to a couple of other topics, one of which relates to House Republicans. I've been talking a bit about this topic on and off. I'll probably have more to say about it because I kind of want to put it to bed on this show, at least my position on it, uh, sometime this week. But – The media attention being paid to George Santos, the newly elected New York Republican congressman, young guy, won by about eight points. He lost narrowly last time, ran again and won. Well, the New York Times put out a piece before the holidays, devastating, going through a whole bunch of things that he had claimed that appear not to be true. He has subsequently admitted to lying about a lot of it. There are more elements that have come out, additional revelations. You wonder if there are more shoes still to drop. I think that he deserves all the criticism that he's getting. I think getting hounded by reporters and that sort of thing comes with the territory, especially if you're going to be a serial liar about things. I do wonder, though, what exactly the standards are about when there's a feeding frenzy over someone who's lied and when there isn't. Because there are other examples in recent history of people caught in really egregious lies, and it's been barely a blip, maybe covered – in partisan press, you know, from the opposite hostile perspective, and that's it, whereas this one seems like a five-alarm fire. Yeah, I guess I would say, first of all, it's just fascinating on a human level, and he's under now federal and state investigations, and I'm not sure he's going to survive as a member of the House, or he may be charged with something. But secondly, you know, since none of us outside of that Long Island district knew who George Santos was, to find out that now he didn't graduate college, as he had claimed, that he didn't work on Wall Street, as he had claimed, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, he's not Jewish. He didn't have a Jewish mother. I mean, everything about this guy. It's one thing if you're a established member of Congress or vice president or candidate, and you say a total whopper, that should be aggressively covered, not just by the opposite partisan side, but by all sides in what we used to call journalism. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. in this case, we knew nothing about this guy. And what does he have to say? And he said very little, and he got decimated on Fox by Tulsi Gabbard uh, about the fact that there were just lies upon lies upon lies. Yeah, it's something we're going to follow. And as I mentioned, I will probably have my final say, at least for now, on this matter sometime this week. I've been watching, waiting, and I'm going to have a piece up at townhall.com tomorrow about it, and I'll probably expound upon that here on the show, either tomorrow or on Friday. Meanwhile, Howie Kurtz, another issue about media coverage, and perhaps disparate media coverage, 
Did you see today the FoxNews.com article about Secretary Pete Buttigieg and his trip on a military aircraft over, I believe, to the Netherlands to go to a sporting event with his husband? This was back in the spring. Now, he was part of a presidential delegation. I think he was leading it. And the administration says this is standard procedure. But you look at just a handful of stories related to Buttigieg and his movements, his travel, his priorities over the last year or so. And there's starting to be maybe a little bit of a drumbeat of questions about whether this guy has his priorities right. You think back to the HHS secretary under President Trump, Mr. Price, who was hounded out of office for his use of private jets, which now Buttigieg has apparently done more than a dozen times as well. Just trying to figure out what exactly the standards are, what the nuances may be. Is there a chance that Buttigieg, who generally has received extremely positive, glowing coverage in most of the press, does he start to attract any negative attention beyond certain quarters? Uh, I think that may be coming, and I think it's bad optics and just plain dumb for him to be taking a military jet when he's the transportation secretary and doesn't need to do that. I think he's got a bigger problem, and that is his handling or lack thereof of the Southwest Airlines fiasco. I mean, he's mm-hmm. got he's got levers of power that he can use against his airline, which had a completely screwed up reservation system and ended up you know canceling like ninety percent of the flights that happened during the storms and the holiday period, and so I. I think the uh, you know the shiny image that Mayor Pete had because a lot of people liked him in the primary came out of nowhere. Small town mayor is getting pretty scuffed up at this point. Let's talk about Barbara Walters. Over the holidays, this legend in our industry passed away, and actually, while I was gone on break, a number of very prominent people died. Pele, the soccer star, Pope Benedict, as well. Barbara Walters is someone that I had watched for years on 2020 on the view back when she started that show she's a pioneer i saw her lampooned by multiple different characters on saturday night live or different actresses on snl she's had such a career and had such longevity in that career she's been out of the public eye for a number of years as she was growing older i didn't realize how old she was but she shattered a lot of glass ceilings howie and i just want to give you an opportunity to reflect on her life, her career, her contributions to this world that you and I inhabit. Well, certainly she made it possible for a lot of women who followed her to have the kinds of careers that they have had, because when she started, she was a Today Show girl, and it's embarrassing to look back on it, and men just wouldn't accept her. Um, but, you know, I, I, because I was privileged to do a number of interviews with her and got to know her, uh, both privately and, and you know, when, when we did these interviews, uh, I wanted to come up with the one thing that, would, you know, you know she, she remade daytime television, television with The View. Uh, she had this amazing career. She could interview anybody. She, she cared about celebrities. She cared about tabloid crime stories. And what I came up with was this. It used to be that there was this great divide. Either you were a serious journalist like Walter Cronkite, that's the way it is, or you were somebody who dealt with sort of entertainment and what we used to call women's issues. Um, Barbara Walters bridged that divide. She said it was okay, not just for a female audience, but for anybody, to, to care about whether or not she could get an interview with the leaders of Egypt and Israel uh, as they were deciding to negotiate a peace treaty, but also she would interview Monica Lewinsky, which also was a huge 
storm of its own kind. She she wanted to interview, you know, Klaus von Bülow and Jean Harris and Mike Tyson, these people who, you know, that's faded from the news, but she cared about these tabloid crime stories. And so we take it all for granted now that you turn on any hour cable news and there'll be, uh, okay, the Supreme Court ruling had this today, and then uh, you know, the Idaho murder case. It's all kind of it's understood that we all believe in it, but Barbara Walters, more than any other single person, I think, made it clear that it was okay for the audience to be interested in both high and low journalism. And she was also really good at getting some of those really huge interviews. I'm sure there was a rivalry between her and, let's say, Diane Sawyer, who would go after them. But, I mean, you know this, when there is a figure in public life, American or otherwise, that the world wants to hear from, and everyone knows whoever lands that fish is going to have a big, big ratings bonanza. Barbara Walters, for years, was a big part of that conversation and often won those little skirmishes, right? Oh, yeah. It was called the get, and that became common knowledge for everybody. And uh, she was very hard to stop when she, because she was doing that. She would do the 10 most fascinating people over the course of a year. She did these Oscar specials, and then she gave it up. And I asked her in one of my interviews, well, why did you give it up? And I figured I'd get some blood. And she said, I got sick of it. I got tired of talking to these movie stars. <laughs> she just had a bluntness and a directness and a humor that I think set her apart. There's never going to be another Barbara Walters. Part of that is the era in which she came up and really transform the industry yeah and part of it's just her as a force of nature last point because we touched on the view i actually had the occasion to watch an old clip i mean years old of the view back when she was one of the co-hosts and of course founder of the show and it struck me even watching three or four minutes of this clip a few days ago how completely unrecognizable in some ways that show is now and maybe has been for a while i mean i understand shows evolve and things change but what that show used to be, it has the same name, kind of the same concept, but I wonder what Barbara Walters would think now or has thought in recent years of what her baby, so to speak, became because it's strikingly different. Yeah, I don't think she would have allowed it to become this, you know, four to one liberal um argue fest and uh, you know there's no getting away from the fact that it's become more and more polarizing and people yell at each other i mean she had to deal with personalities too like rosie o'donnell but she brought this this gravitas to it because of her long uh, abc and nbc career and it is right. sad now in some ways to see uh although you know the, the formula talk about politics talk about movie stars stuff about all this stuff it was very much barbara walters but now it's become so politicized and polarized guy okay. Yeah. And she was kind of the adult in the room, figuratively, on that show. And now that adult has left the room. She has passed on Barbara Walters dying over the holidays. And Howie, because this is your beat and has been for so many years, I wanted to get your reflections. I'm glad I asked because she was a fascinating figure uh, who represents a lot of change and also perhaps a bygone era. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz, every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Check out his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, foxnewspodcast.com. You can follow him on Twitter, as I do, at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, looking forward to next time. Thanks, Guy. Me too. The Guy Benson Show continues with the happy hour next. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. So I saw this report from the New York Post. Meghan Markle to release her own bombshell memoir. 
after her husband Harry's spare, his memoir, I guess, is out or coming out. Once that is published and they make all the money there and get all the publicity there, she is going to write her own memoir and reap who knows what amount of money from that and publicity and attention and interviews. I saw that. Is he still Prince Harry or have they stripped him of certain titles? Whatever he is, he's doing a big, long interview, I think, with Anderson Cooper. Then she's going to write a bunch of other stuff in her book. I don't know what else left there is to say. How many times can you come out and just trash the royal family and talk about what a victim you are, especially since you aren't accumulating new allegations because you've been persona non grata here for a while? And how much appetite is there from the population of the U.S., the U.K., to keep reading this stuff? I know producer Christine will lap it all up with a spoon. She's the mark here. But to me, it's like exhausting. Who cares? And the other thing that's so interesting about it to me, and I think belies the whole duplicitous posture that these two have adopted, they keep complaining about their privacy. They just want to live their lives. They hated all the attention and the spotlight. Just leave us alone. Just give us our privacy. And yet it seems like they really don't want privacy at all. They're like, give us our privacy, except when you're watching our interviews, reading our books, etc. Boring. I did not come into this hardcore anti-Harry and Meghan, but I've gotten there in a hurry. They're insufferable. And someday we'll bring producer Christine on to give the opposite opinion, but not today, Satan. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, boy, we had a memorable interview with Dan Crenshaw, Republican congressman from Texas, who joined us here live, then stepped onto the floor to vote, and then came back off the floor to resume the interview with us. He was extremely incensed with some of his Republican colleagues and did not hold back on this whole speaker fiasco. Here's part of that blistering commentary from Congressman Crenshaw. You just cast your vote. I'm just trying to figure out, like, setting aside what what this means for the future of this so-called majority, because right now it is not a functional majority, just in the immediate future. I know there's discussion about maybe trying to adjourn again for the night like happened yesterday. What would that accomplish? It just seems like no matter what happens, talking more is achieving nothing. So at at some point you would think that, you would have to get out of whatever this rut is and do something quite different to try to get a different result. I'm just trying to figure out what those options would look like. Yeah, look, we are too. Um, <laughs> because, again, you know, and I want to I want to tell the audience this very very clearly. I, and this has been reported widely, but any one of us, whether it's members of Congress or members of the media, who ask these twenty holdouts, what is it you want? Like, what's your end game? They can't answer it. They can't answer it because because McCarthy and leadership did give in on a lot of the rules changes they wanted. They negotiated them. They you know and some of these rules changes are not bad things, right? It, it's 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 changing the way the house works, right? They claim that that's what they want, and then they get these things and they get large agreement on it because it turns out that the uh, house majority is quite conservative and does believe in these same principles. But now they're the dog that caught the bone and they don't know what to do with it. And they claim, oh, it's not personal. Now it's about trust. Okay, well, how do we overcome this trust issue? Well, you know, McCarthy voted for an omnibus in 2017. I mean, literally, this is the kind of stuff they say. 
And we're like, yeah, when Trump was president, you mean to, to fund Trump's government? You know, so like these, they, they keep coming up with the more and more ridiculous reasons. I, I love bringing up the uh, example of Bob Good because I think he's one of the worst members of our caucus. This is an absolute dud. But he literally got up and he was mad at McCarthy because McCarthy took three weeks to call him after his election. Can you believe that? McCarthy, by the way, spent about $2 million to get that loser elected because he couldn't get elected on his own. You know, Lauren Boebert, who just insulted Donald Trump <laughs> just because Trump's supporting McCarthy, I mean, she barely won her election. McCarthy spent a bunch of money on her because she's not good enough to win in an R plus six or seven or whatever that is. You know, these members contribute nothing, nothing to our majority. They contribute nothing to the conservative movement. They don't write bills. They don't think about policy. They don't even know who Thomas Sowell is. They've never read anything about conservative philosophy or thought. They have no opinions on how to fix Social Security or the budget. They just want to yell and scream. And then they want to make demands. And what I told some of them is, I'm like, look, you know, one of the reasons there's such intense animosity right now between these holdouts and everyone else is everyone else has to work for their positions. So some of the demands are, I mean, this is, this is another crazy story. So, so they demand more places on, on committees. So McCarthy says, okay, give me a list of names. And then they refuse. And then, and then they say, oh, you're trying to trick us. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like playing with children. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to, to understand what it is they want. They also don't understand that that's not how committee selection works. The committee selection works through a steering committee. And every other member who doesn't hold the entire, the entire uh, body hostage, every other member has to go to steering members to make their case, explain why they think they're the best for, for this particular committee, why they know the most about this particular subject, why they're a leader on this and that. I mean, I'm doing all of that right now for the Homeland Chairman race. And they want a different situation where because they're part of a select group that can hold the rest of the group hostage, that they should get special privileges. And this is just this is just disgusting. I mean, it's just disgusting behavior. My full interview with Dan Crenshaw, and boy, you do want to hear all of it, believe me. Available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast at the end of every show, on demand every day, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, well, it is a new year, but we have the same Christine. It's the new adventures of the same old Christine. She has a few new tales just in the first couple days of January that she wants to share with us. So hang on, buckle up. We'll get to those next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. It's the Guy Benson Show. Halfway through this first week of January, thank you for tuning in. Catch me tonight on Kennedy in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free and on demand every day, as we always like to remind you. Now that we're in the new year, producer Christine and I and Dan were on the call earlier today planning the show. Quiet Wyatt is on vacation. In fact, we'll have to grill him about his vacation. A very exciting one, I have to say, once he's back. But he's out this week, so it's just the three of us, skeleton crew here at the program. And we were tossing around different ideas and different topics and putting in the various puzzle pieces into the segments, as we do every day. And usually we end up planning this segment, if not first, near the beginning of our call, because we enjoy these segments. We enjoy how silly and ridiculous they are. 
But today I almost forgot. I was like, oh, I think we're done. We've gotten everything under our belts, right? We're, we're through here. And Christine said, no, the home stretch. And I just paused for a second. I didn't really have anything off the top of my head. And then, like a machine gun, she had a whole list of things, new foibles in her life that she wants to, I guess, put out there for the world. So we might as well pick up basically where we left off last year. All right, Christine, let's start, I guess, with the good news. It is the 4th of January. So you are four days into dry January. And thus far, my understanding is, as of this hour, (laughs) you are succeeding. I am killing it. I feel like I want to ready. Wait, when when you say killing it, do you mean like killing the end of a bottle? No, no, I am, cookie is dry. I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but <laughs> no, that's. It's a I'm dry really... cookie. <laughs> it's a dry cookie. It's a little overbaked. Now, when did this start? Just for clarification purposes, when did you start dry January? Uh, January. Oh, so, okay. I have a question for you. If you stayed yeah. up past midnight and had a couple cocktails before you went to bed, does that count? I mean, that doesn't, that's not, that's still considered. I think it's fine. I think if you wake up on the morning of New Year's Eve, and you go out on New Year's Eve, and you have a night of drinking, and then the ball drops, it hits midnight, everyone does their thing, and you keep drinking, then go to sleep, the next morning when you wake up, that is an acceptable time for dry January to begin. Well, then just call me the dry January overachiever. No, I I will not do that because you've gone down this path before and failed. What was it last year? Seven days? Uh, I believe 11. You might have gotten all the way to a week and a half. You might be right about that. So you are still a week away from last year's record of 11 days. You're four days in, which is good. Mm -hmm. I applaud, like golf clap. But I think we need to check back in periodically. Is that fair? Sure. I, I do have to say, um, do we probably talked about this before, probably every year, but do celebratory events like not count? Like it's my mom's birthday and it's like we're going to have like a dinner with a few people. No, that Obviously, absolutely counts. But it's a weekend. No. It's a weekend and it's her birthday. So like, no, that's, that is drinking. That is not dry January. That's something else. Hmm. All right, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it on Saturday. This Saturday. Oh, Dan, am I am I wrong here, Dan? No, I mean you got to go completely dry. Nothing counts. I have my two year anniversary during January, and we're not going to drink because we're doing dry January. So we're oh, going to do the anniversary without drinking. So that you know can't do it. You have you- to really like your partner, <laughs> yeah. right? Like dead sober. Like yeah. oh gosh, two years, huh? So congratulations in advance, and Thank you're going to do it. I'm much more confident in you than I am in you know others who shall not be named but that's the standard case closed there are no excuses like judgy joyce's birthday on a weekend if he's not drinking or even having a glass of champagne on an anniversary i think that tells the story here christine now i have to get to these other ones because there's a lot that you listed for us that we need to get through before the end of the show i hesitate to ask i will anyway you have written on the rundown that your first get-rich-quick or money-related scheme of 2023 has already fallen flat. What happened? So I tried to sell yesterday my leased car. I repeat, I tried to sell my leased car. 
Is that legal? Well, I found a guy who knew somebody that I knew. Mm. I'm not kidding. His name is Johnny. He's from North this Jersey. I'm not. So I'm not even this. <laughs> This is Should not you be announcing this on the national radio show that you work on. Is this what we should be doing? If law enforcement, not... if you're a law enforcement officer, just do us a favor. We we love you listening, but just for this next five minutes, maybe just click off the radio because I don't want Christine back in prison again. Go ahead. I, so <laughs> I I found a guy through a friend. And not, I wouldn't even call her a friend, somebody I just met, and I loved so is her he car. A, is he like a good guy? Would you call him almost like a good fella? I, I don't really know him that well. He seems really mm. nice. He called He mm. called me Love every time we talk. What's up, Love? Mm-hmm. How you doing, Love? Is his name so, Craig? Does he have a list, too? Is that where you found him? <laughs> no, his name is Johnny. <laughs> no, this is like, I know a guy who knows a guy, and he's Pretty wise. Much. So he he used to work for a dealer, but then he figured he would go out on his own. So he like started this own company, and he kind of like works with you on your deals. Like he'll bring you the car, which I was fascinated by. Like I didn't have to go to a dealership. My lease is coming up. I thought I could make a quick buck because if you've seen the um, used car market is pretty high right now. So I thought I could sell my car. Yeah, but you don't own the car. Well, so there's a way around it somehow. Like I, it, it, he would figure it out how he would. T- I can't explain it all because now I'm not really sure how it was going to happen. But there was going to be a certain way, and then I was going to go get like a really nice new car. And my husband kept saying, "Like, was, I'm not can signed- I just say that there was just sorry to interrupt, but like when you say there was going to be a way, was that way possibly a crime? Just like no. doing a crime? Absolutely not. Mm, no, okay. it was it was more of like." Him finding somebody that will buy out my car, you know, where and then they would pay off the bank and then they would yeah, just cut me a check for the extra. Very, so I thought I was just dodgy to begin with, but quite <laughs> elaborate. Lots of moving parts. And the upshot is what? The whole thing fell through. My husband like started like doing some research into this and he was like, This no way and he forbid me to start texting Johnny back. So if Johnny does listen to the show, I'm really sorry. My husband like forbid me to keep talking to you. He said did, that uh, he has his limits. Did you ghost Johnny? I haven't yet. I'm going I think I'm gonna have to, or I'm gonna have to explain to him that like what's Does Johnny happen. know who you are and like where you live? Yeah, I gave him all my information on the car, like my VIN Good. number, everything. Yeah, but Bobby does not know him. that. No, mm-hmm. no. Now he does. <laughs> Hi, Bobby. Happy New Year, Bobby. I thought uh, I was well, going to pocket like five grand. I thought I was going to get a check cut to me like this Friday for five grand. I sometimes watch like heist-related documentaries about some of the more ingenious schemes through the years and how people got caught or got away with it. I mean, then there's just whatever this is. I think this would not get the green light from Netflix. Okay, so that failed, and you're, I think, done with it, but you might get some unwelcome phone calls, text messages, or even knocks at the door from Johnny. Let's hope not moving forward. Meanwhile, you had a new exercise plan, it sounds like. How's that going? Yep. Started back at the uh, good old Orange Theory, and you know that is not cheap at all. Uh, I said this was going to be the year of Cookie. She was going to get into shape and look like a 30-year-old again. Mm-hmm. And um, I woke up today and some like the side of my throat hurt in my ear. So yeah, I just decided, you know what, I'm not going. And Bobby said this is why we could not do Unlimited 
class is with you because it's very, very pricey um, because he just doesn't trust me. Because once you once you sign up for Orange Theory, if you back out within like an hour or two, like poof, your class is gone that you had paid for already. You don't get that back. So not killing it in the exercise department, to be fair. Can you get a refund or are you just going to let that whole thing peter out? Uh, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to try back. You know what, guy? There's a saying that if at first you don't succeed, you mm. dust yourself off and try again. And that's what I'm going to do. And you're trying to turn back the clock to 30, which is oh boy, quite a I? turn back. Turn back time in the words of Cher. <laughs> right? Turn back time. Back to Cher when she was super popular when you were – what, probably in your 20s or 30s back in the 80s or maybe the 70s? No, I was I'm trying to do the, the math here. I, I'm, no. I'm bad. I'm bad with the calendar stuff and exactly, you know, when Cher was popular. She had that comeback in the early 2000s, I want to say. In any case, we got to move on. Last but not least, you have now humiliated your sweet daughter, Megan. Was it at school? What, what happened here? Okay. Well, I, I explained this to Dan earlier and he was like, oh, good grief. I personally don't think it's a humiliation, but uh, my babysitter who picks Megan up a couple days a week is going to Brazil for a few months. And so I needed somebody to... A few months? uh, mm Mm-hmm. She's from there. Okay. So um, I needed somebody to pick up Megan, and I couldn't find anybody, and I was getting really worried. So I went to Megan's principal, and I said, do you have, like, a billboard or, you know, like, a poster board or somewhere where I could, like... She goes, what? Like, to put up a sign? She goes, we don't do that anymore. You know, like, where you could, like, post, like, ads or something? Like, do people do that, not do that anymore? Do you have any clue what I'm talking about? Not really. Like, you know, like... You know when you go somewhere no – <laughs> I'm looking for somebody. That's what I was basically trying to tell her. I'm looking for somebody. I have this amount of money to pay. You know, what – can you help me find somebody to take Megan home? And Can you just dial up Johnny? <laughs> Johnny's busy. <laughs> I need a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see the ad now just like needed – Call I, back. Yeah, call back, oh. please. So what happened, Christine? Well, uh, the principal has volunteered to now drive Megan home. <gasps> the principal of the school. Uh-huh. I mean, that's very nice of the principal, but oh, man, if you're Megan, you don't want that. Right? Like, is that bad? I mean, I would have loved it as a kid. I would have enjoyed it so much if I could talk to the principal every day. Oh, I was like school. buddies with my principal, Mr. Ward in elementary school. He was terrific. I mean, I'm with you, but I just not every kid is like either one of us on this front. And Megan is definitely not like that. So, Bobby, you don't want to be different. You want to stand out for a lot of kids, and that's a big standout. You're not going to the principal's office. You're going to the principal's car every day. (laughs) So, I'm not really sure how to get out of that one. My mom said basically just say like, "Oh, my mom decided to do it," or you know, something else. But like, I can't lie to the principal. So. Megan might be, you know, getting a ride <laughs> from the wow. principal. Well, it is very much a new year and very much the same cookie. Never fear, America. Our producer, Christine, intrepid executive producer of this program, has not changed over the holidays one iota. And we would not have it any other way. And with that, 
We're out of time for today. Back here for the Thursday edition tomorrow. Catch me tonight. Kennedy, FBN, 7 p.m. hour on the tube. Back here on the radio. Same time, same place. Looking forward to it. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.